Now, before we look at the actual text itself, I believe it's important to step back and recall where we are uh, situated in this passage or in this letter to the Corinthian church. This passage is situated within Paul addressing the question that the Corinthians had raised to him in a prior letter. The Corinthians had asked him a question about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And so this is part of that larger answer that Paul has been providing throughout the prior chapters. A couple of weeks ago, John led us through chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 8, we see where Paul is addressing matters of the conscience. That there are certainly things that Scripture neither commands nor prohibits in regards to taking a particular activity or a particular stance. And as John reminded us, that the conscience is our internal belief about what is right and what is wrong. And that conscience will certainly be informed by Scripture. And generally, we should follow our conscience and what our conscience is telling us, what is sin and what is not sin. Because if we believe something to be sin, and we willingly partake in that activity, then it is as if we are disobeying our master. And so in that case, for that person, that activity is sin from a conscious standpoint. And that doesn't mean that our conscience is supreme. Scripture alone is supreme. Conscience is not a substitute for Scripture. Scripture alone is inspired. Scripture alone is an error and infallible. Our consciences are not. Our consciences, they are imperfect. They are susceptible to being influenced, and they can easily be changed over time. That doesn't mean that our conscience is without, or is not without any kind of merit, without value. It certainly is. And then last week, Kevin led us through chapter 9. And this is where Paul is really double-clicking in on this idea of the conscience and honing in specifically on the believer's liberty, on the, the Christian liberty. And as Kevin helped us to see last week, that true liberty is not being able to partake in a particular activity, but true liberty is being, being able to abstain from an activity. Before, in our natural state, our natural sinful state, all we could do was sin. We could not submit to the will of the Father. Scripture says that we were slaves to sin, and as slaves to sin, all we could do was follow that earthly master. But now, because of Christ, because Christ has redeemed us, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, now we are free to submit to the will of the Father. And as Kevin reminded us last week, what is the will of the Father? It is that others would come to know Him, that they would come to obey Him, submit to Him, and to glorify Him. And this week, as we get to chapter 10, what we're going to see is Paul is zooming back out and shifting over to another aspect of this conscious discussion. He's going to be looking at particular um, areas where folks may say, listen, this is a conscious matter, but in reality, it's truly just a matter of idolatry. And Paul is going to use several examples in the life of Israel to help illustrate his point to the Corinthian church. And so it's my hope that as we go through this text, we're going to see two primary things, that we're going to learn to heed history's examples and that we are going to flee from idolatry. And so as we go through the passage, hopefully we'll be able to see these points be fleshed out. So if you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll read for us verses 1 through 22, and then we will dive into it. But I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. For these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 of them died in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? One of the first things that we see in this passage in, in verse 1 is how Paul is addressing the Corinthians. Recall that the Corinthian church is made up of primarily Gentile believers. Yet Paul is re- referencing them or is speaking about our fathers. Our fathers. Not in a singular sense of just Paul's fathers, but ours, the Corinthians, and Paul's. Now we know that Paul is certainly a Jew. In his letter to the Philippian church, he identifies himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is an Israelite through and through. He can certainly claim these Israelites as his forefathers. But how can the Gentiles, these who were non-Jewish, how is it they can identify these Israelites as their fathers? There lies one of the wonderful truths that we see in Scripture, that all who follow Christ, who repent and believe in him, that they are grafted into the family of God. That they are made a part of this holy nation, this royal people, this priesthood, this people after God's own possession. This is who we're brought into that if you are a follower of Christ. It doesn't matter that they, have, they don't have the blood of Abraham, but instead it matters that they profess the faith of Abraham. Scripture tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord, that they will be saved. That those who repent of their sin, those who rest in the work of Christ, that they will be spared from the wrath of God. That is what Scripture tells us, and that is what Paul is telling these Corinthians as well. That as followers of Christ, that they can identify these Israelites as their fathers, just as those who were born of the Israelite ethnicity. But for those who are followers of Christ, those who are followers of Christ, they can certainly identify these their fathers too. So we can, just as the Corinthians could. This is why it's important that we study the Old Testament that we learn our family history, in a sense. Think about whenever we go to the doctor. What do they do when we go to the doctor? They check your personal vitals, right? They check those. They also inquire about your personal medical history. 
But they're also asking about what else? It's your family's history. They want to know what else is going on with your family, with your forefathers, your relatives. This is because oftentimes the sicknesses of our fathers, of our relatives, are saying things that we may be susceptible to as well. See, these Israelites, they certainly had episodes of faithfulness, but they had seasons of failures as well. By identifying these Israelites as the Corinthians' forefathers, Paul is teaching them that they too can be susceptible to the same sin that befell the Israelites. The same things they fell into that the Corinthians can fall into as well. So heed these words. But before Paul addressed the failures of the Israelites, Paul starts out by recounting some other examples in the life of Israel. Look at verses 1 through 4. Paul is beginning in verses 1 through 4 by recounting some of the examples in the life of Israel where we see God's favor upon the Israelites. We see where Israel was brought under the cloud. They passed through the sea. That they ate spiritual food. They drank spiritual drink. That all of these are hearkening back to accounts that we see back in Exodus. See, in Exodus 13, we see where God is leading the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see in Exodus 14 where God uses Moses to part the Red Sea so people could walk through the waters on dry ground in order to escape the reach of Pharaoh. We see later on in Exodus 16 where in order to satisfy their need for food, their hunger for food, God sends manna from heaven to them. In Exodus 17, we see where God, in order to satisfy their thirst, he brings forth water from a rock at Horeb. All these displayed the favor of God upon the people of Israel. Now there's, there's another event that we see in Exodus, I'm oh, sorry, in, Deut- in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 that Paul is mentioning that is a little odd. Like all the other ones, we can recount, we can harken back to other events in Exodus. You know, we think about being uh, uh, brought through the waters. We can see uh, the eating the spiritual food, drinking the spiritual drink. Those easily recount our minds back to other events in Exodus. There's another phrase here that's kind of strange that stands out. And that is being baptized into Moses in the sea, in the cloud. That's an odd phrase that doesn't immediately harken our minds back to anything. But when we think about it, we need to understand what does that word baptism mean? It comes from the Greek word baptizo, that is a full immersion into water. And we see here the symbols of the cloud and the sea, both consisting of water as examples, as symbols of what the Israelites were immersed into or immersed uh, through. But baptism is more than just immersion. Baptism is identification. If it was simply immersion, then every time we took a bath, we would go through baptism. That's certainly not the case. But baptism is also an act of identification. Consider us as believers when we are baptized. Galatians 3.27 tells us, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 6.3.4 tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Or in Colossians 2.12, Paul tells us, having been buried with him in baptism, it was you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Our baptism as followers of Christ shows our identification with him. It shows that we are united with him, that we are submitting to his leadership. And in a similar way, what Paul is referring to here is that 
when they are baptized into Moses, they are reflecting their identification with him, their submission to him, that they are under his leadership, under his headship in a way. That's part of what they're identifying or they're displaying is their identification with him. But they're also showing here, uh, we should see the juxtaposition between being baptized into Moses and being baptized into Christ. That being baptized into Moses, being baptized into Christ, are also examples of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We see the New Covenant where Christ is the figurehead of the New Covenant, that he is the one who implements the New Covenant. And Moses, he is the one who brings forth the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And he is the figurehead, in a sense, of that Old Covenant. So think what Paul is saying when he's using this phrase here, being baptized into Moses. He's using it to symbolize not only their identification with Moses, their submission to him, their union with him, but also it's a reflection of their inclusion into this old covenant that was to guide them all of their days. There's a lot packed into that little phrase, being baptized into Moses. But all of this, each of these episodes in Exodus, are showcasing the tremendous favor that these Israelites experienced from God. All these wonderful events should point them towards God. He led them out of bondage, that he was the one who delivered them from Pharaoh. He united them under the leadership of Moses. He included them in this old covenant. He was the one who provided for all their physical needs until they reached the promised land. He sustained them. They experienced tremendous favor, tremendous blessings from God. And these blessings, this favor that they received, Paul is telling the Corinthians, you too have the same favor from God. Consider the fact that God, he leads you, he draws you, that he has delivered you from the bondage of your sin, that he has united us all, all of us that are Jew and, and Gentile, those who are free and slave, male and female, all have been united under Christ Jesus, who is the greater Moses. And we've been included in his new covenant. And he provides for all of our spiritual sustenance, all of our days, until, like John Bunyan says, we reach that celestial city, until we reach heaven. So we see the parallel here between God providing for the Israelites and God's provision for the Corinthians and extending even to us today. And while these are, are wonderful accounts in the life of Israel, and these are great things that we need to, to think about in our own family history, Paul doesn't waste any time, though, before he drops the other shoe in verse 5 and highlights many of the failures of Israel. See, in verse 5, he says this, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Consider, he had just finished speaking about how all of them, that all of them were under the cloud. All of them passed through the sea. All of them ate the spiritual food. All of them drank the spiritual drink. But in contrast to this all, he's saying that most of them God was not pleased with. Why is that? Well, he provides the answer in verse 6. He says that they desired evil. They pursued evil. That was the reason God was not pleased with these people. Look at verses 6 through 11. It says this. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. 
nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Instead of trusting and obeying in God, these Israelites pursued evil. He's, Paul is recounting these examples for them to serve as a warning, as an instruction for the Corinthian church. And see, in life we have two examples. We have examples that are positive and examples that are negative. We have examples that we should follow and examples that we should flee from. Paul is highlighting here for the Corinthian church, what you see in the life of Israel, these are examples of things that you should flee from. Don't think that you aren't susceptible to these same things that befell them. You can fall just as they did. And Paul is highlighting four specific instances, four specific activities that they were partaking in that he is warning them against. We see those here as idolatry, sexual morality, testing God, and grumbling against God. Now before looking at each of these in turn, it's interesting just the way that Paul is even framing his argument here. So we see in the way that Paul is even framing his argument that he has a similar pattern. He has a negative command, he has an action, he has an accusation, and then he has evidence that he's presenting. In each of these, in verses, in, in, in verses uh, of, of 5 through 10, he's identifying, don't do this action that those people, those Israelites did, and here's the reason, here's the evidence why you shouldn't do those things. And then we see in verses 6 through 11, or 6 and 11, parallel phrases where God is saying, these are examples for you. These things in the middle, these are examples for you that you should heed. It's just an interesting way that, that Paul is framing his argument. But as you turn to the issue of idolatry, the first one that he's mentioning there, what Paul is doing is he's hearkening back to the events we see in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, we see here where Moses, he went out to Mount Sinai. He went up to the mountain while the Israelites stayed down below. And over time, these Israelites, they became impatient with God. And they demanded that an idol, a false god, be created for them, reminiscent of the pagan gods that they had just left, the culture that they had just left. And so Aaron creates this golden calf for the people of Israel. We fast forward. Moses comes down. The idol is destroyed. The idol is desecrated. Thousands of people are killed. And God even sends a plague upon the people. Apparently the consequences of their idolatry was severe. It wasn't anything to be taken lightly. So why is that Paul is using this example in the life of Israel as a warning for the Corinthian church? There has to be some kind of connection between this story and what is going on for the Corinthians. Well, I think it's important to recall their pagan background, the context that the Corinthians were situated in. As Kevin reminded us last week, Corinth was ripe with paganism, was ripe with idolatry. And many of the Corinthian church, they came out of this former pagan culture this former pagan worship, idol worship. So they were from this pagan culture, just like these Israelites had come from a pagan culture over in Egypt. And he's telling them, he's warning them that what happened there can still happen to you. Many of these Corinthians, instead of questioning how far they should flee from their former pagan past, they were questioning just how far they could stay near their pagan culture. Just how close they could say, stay. And Paul is telling them, don't do this. Heed their examples. He says that in verse 12. He says, heed their examples. If these people who were your fathers, 
These people who were led under the cloud, who were led through the sea, these people who experienced this tremendous favor of God, if they could fall into temptation, if they could fall into sin, don't think that you can't fall as well. You are susceptible just as they're susceptible. This temptation the Israelites experienced wasn't anything unique to them. It is common to us all. But despite this potential predisposition towards sin, in this case, the idolatry of the Israelites, Paul is saying, you're not off the hook here. You may have this particular predisposition, but that's not an excuse to partake in the activity. God will always provide a way of escape to avoid sin. But note what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that he is always going to remove the temptation. He very well may, but it doesn't say he's always going to remove the temptation. Instead, he provides a way to endure it, to escape potential of that. This idea that we may have to endure temptation should not lead us to despair. Instead, it should lead us to the cross, lead us to reliance on him, to recognize that we need him every day, every hour, because we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this in ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us. Then in verses 16 through 22, Paul implores the second ordinance of the church. He implores the Lord's Supper, communion, as a way to help illustrate his point regarding idolatry. He's using both baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of these ordinances, to illustrate this point regarding idolatry. And we see an admonition here where Paul is telling them that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, that we are celebrating our union with him, that we are identifying ourselves with him, we are, uh, we are aligned with him. And when pagans partake of food sacrificed to idols, they're celebrating their union with that idol, with those pagans. They are celebrating that they are aligned with him, with that false god, that idol. Even in that passage, Paul is hearkening back to another event in the life of Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, 16 through 17, when Moses is speaking a song before his death, he says these words. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Paul knows that the demons, demons delight in the worship of any god other than the one true God. That if your eyes aren't fixed on him, that they're happy. And so Paul is saying in a sense that when you partake of this pagan worship, when you partake of this pagan table, that you're in a sense partaking with these demons. How is it that you can pledge allegiance to Christ as your king whenever you're collaborating with his enemies? You cannot worship these false gods, these idols, and worship God. God alone deserves your worship. That's what Paul is telling these Corinthians. And he's telling them, consider what happened to Israel whenever they provoked the Lord's jealousy. It did not end well for them. When they provoked the Lord's jealousy, they procured God's anger Upon them. It was not good. But God, but Paul doesn't just stop at the matter of idolatry. He looks at other areas, addresses other areas of temptation for these Israelites as well. He raises the area of sexual morality in verse 8. We've already recounted in many prior sermons the temptation that the Corinthians had regarding sexual immorality. So he's hollering, This is a big problem for you. You need to be warned about this. 
This is a problem they've had in their prior lives, prior to their conversion. Paul is telling them, look back to Numbers, Numbers 25, the episode that we see there. In Numbers 25, Israel is beginning to partake in sexual morality with the people of Moab. And this provoked the Lord's anger, and as a result, he commanded the death of all of those who partook in that sexual perversion. Then in verse 9, we see that the Corinthians were not only continuing these former pagan practices, but they were also testing God. Paul is pointing them back to another event in Numbers, Numbers 21, where the Israelites had become impatient with God's provision of food and water for them, and so they began to speak against God. They began to test God. And so what did God do? He sent serpents. He sent serpents among Israel and led to the death of many there. We see from the history of Israel that this idolatry, this sexual morality, this testing God, it doesn't end well for them. In all these cases, it is quite severe, so severe, so consequential that it brought about the death of many. <coughs> but Paul includes in this list of, of vices, this list of sins, another thing. He includes in verse 10 the example of grumbling. He includes there that apparently the Corinthians were being tempted with grumbling. Now, I know that as us here at Alpine, that nobody here ever has ever had an issue with grumbling. That even today, I get it, like we have not faced that, not even today. But apparently, the Corinthians dealt with temptations to grumble. And so just with a virtue growth of the text, we'll go ahead and see what Paul is telling them. You know, I know it doesn't apply to us because we don't grumble, but apparently this Corinthians certainly were. So he's providing them this example because it's relevant to their situation. In Numbers 14, we see where there were spies who brought back a bad report, a bad report about what was going on in the promised land. And as a result of bringing back this bad report, there were many Israelites who were led to grumble. Now, what did God do as a result of their grumbling? He brought about the death of all of those spies, save two. Then for all those folks who did grumble, everyone who was over 20, God said, every one of you, you will die in the wilderness. You will not see the promised land. So apparently this grumbling against God was a pretty big thing. And this is something that Paul is warning the Corinthians about. Heed the Israelites' example. Don't follow the path that they are going on. So again, we've seen here two main things throughout this passage. We've seen that we should be heeding history's examples, and we should be fleeing from idolatry, flee from those temptations. So as we begin to conclude, what is it that we need to see from this text? What is it that Paul is telling them that also is something that we should glean some wisdom from? We need to consider our own temptations. We need to consider within, before we were converted to Christ, what were we prone to idolize? What were we prone to, to worship and to pursue? What are the things that even now that we are continuing to be tempted with? Are there folks who come before you that are examples for you that, that can serve as a, as a warning for you, both as a positive and as a negative, to follow, to imitate, but also to flee from? Heed those examples that we see in history and flee from idolatry. There may be some practices that are permissible for another brother or sister, but those same practices would be idolatry for you. They may be free from a conscious standpoint, but for you, those will be idolatry. Don't allow their freedom 
to serve as an excuse for you to partake in sin, for you to partake in idolatry. Recognize those and flee from those. Don't despise another brother because of their freedom. And also, don't restrict another believer's, uh, don't restrict another due to your own temptation. So the point here is we should heed the examples that we see in history and that we should flee from idolatry that we see.